Let me invite you, friends, to take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. If you would like to use the blue Bible that's in the seat in front of you, you can find our passage on page 1119. We are at the very end of this letter that Peter wrote to exiled Christians. We've been journeying through it together for a while, and this morning we, we see it through to the end. If you're wondering where are we going next, well, for a little while over the summer, we're going to be back in the book of, of the Psalms. And so we're going to take a look and continue our kind of on-again, off-again series called The Psalms, The Songs of Jesus. So I'm looking forward to starting that next week, but i got to be honest, this is a bittersweet morning because I have loved this book. I hope that God has used the book of First Peter in your life the way he's used it in mine. And so I, I feel like he ends with a bang. There's some great stuff in our text this morning, but it's bittersweet because I don't want it to be over. But the good news is we can go back to it as often as we'd like. So would you look at your copy of God's Word in 1 Peter chapter 5? I'm going to start in verse 5, the second sentence there. So hear the word of the Lord. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as I said this morning, we come to Peter's closing words in this letter. And as we wrap it up, I think it's helpful for us to remember what this letter's been about and what it is that we've seen over these last few months together. And to help us see what Peter's been talking about, I brought along a visual aid this morning. Actually, you brought it. If you have a bulletin, I want you to pull it out and take a look at the front cover. There you see the graphic for our sermon series. And there in the title and subtitle, you'll find the major concepts from this letter. There's a reason we call our series what we do. And so we call this series Exiles, Living with Hope and Holiness in a Land That's Not Our Home. 
So as we walk through each of those pieces, perhaps more than any other concept, the reason that the letters are the biggest, because more than any other concept, the main thing Peter wants to remind his readers of is that through our faith in Jesus, we've been born again to a whole new life and a new identity as God's people. And now, because we belong to him, that's made us exiles and strangers in this world. Through the gospel, we've been given citizenship in a different kingdom. And we live here as foreigners. As exiles, we are living in a land that's not our home. And when God made us his people, he changed us, right? To live transformed lives. If you are in Jesus, you are not the same person you once were. Instead, we live lives that reflect our Father. As obedient children, we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but as he who called us is holy, we also ought to conduct ourselves in holiness. We are to fight hard against our sin and to live beautiful lives filled with doing good. And as we live these lives marked by holiness, we will look different than the world around us. And because of that, we will face harm and hatred for his name. We will face suffering because we belong to Jesus. He suffered for doing good, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us as though something strange were happening to us. Yet we can take heart because we know that these various trials we'll face are according to God's will and are both proving and purifying our faith in him. And because of that reality, we live in a land that's not our home, not just in holiness, but in hope. We have a sure and certain hope that the suffering we face is not the last word. Instead, God is using all of it to lead us to glory. And because of that, we can rejoice as we share Christ's sufferings because we know that we will also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, if any of us suffers as a Christian, we don't need to be ashamed, but we can glorify God in that name as we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's been Peter's message, right? Hopefully, lots of things are sounding familiar. That's been his message all throughout the letter, and now as he draws to a close, he has one more thought that he wants to leave us with in verse 12. One idea that he wants ringing in these readers' ears, that he wants to impress upon us. And in verse 12, those two words are stand firm. Exile, as you face suffering on your way to glory, stand firm. And in our passage this morning, what I want to do, the way I want to walk through it with you, is I want to point out five ways that Peter wants us as exiles to stand firm. Firm. So here's kind of our outline for the morning. In verses 5 to 7, he'll call us to stand firm against your anxieties. In 8 and 9, he'll say, stand firm against your adversary. In 10 and 11, stand firm in confident hope. In verse 12, stand firm in grace. And finally, in 13 and 14, stand firm together. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. So let's look at the first way we are to stand firm. Look back up at verse 5. And we're going to again start in the second part of verse 5. 
He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So as we look at these verses, there's one main command, right? It's be humble. He says it a few different times. And this should be self-evident in some ways, right? Because Christians of all people should be the most humble. Why do I say that? Well, because we rightly recognize our standing in relation to others. We're humble toward other people on one hand because we know we are no better than anyone else. Everyone we will encounter is made in the image of God just like we are. And we recognize that we're the worst sinner we know. No matter what I may know about you and your sin, even better than that, I know the ugliness that still lurks in my own soul. And that is meant to make me humble toward others. Because I know I need Jesus as much or more than anyone else I will ever meet. And yet on the other hand, it not only makes us humble toward other people, we're also humble towards God. Because we remember that he is the creator and we are his creatures. He is the king and we are his people. He is the shepherd and we are his sheep. There is literally nothing we have that we have not received from him. And the only reason that we are in right standing before him and are saved is because of him. We were helpless and hopeless in our sin and he saved us. Not according to our works, but according to his mercy. Friends, we deserve nothing from God but wrath. And yet in Christ, we receive nothing from God but good. That's amazing. And that should make us humble, both toward other people and toward our God. But here, Peter focuses in and he wants to tell us a particular way for us to be humble. And I think at first, it's a bit surprising. Do you see the way he tells us? It's there in verse 7. He tells us to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand by casting all our anxieties on him. In other words, Peter's saying that humility means casting our anxieties on God and not carrying our anxieties ourselves. It's pride that says, no, 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 I got it. Don't worry. Yeah, it's hard. I, I get it. But I can handle it. I can get through this. I, I, I'll make it. I have, the, I have the internal strength. I have the reserves. I can pull this off. When we carry our fears and carry our worries and cares ourselves, friends, that's actually pride. We think of pride usually when we say pride, what comes to mind is usually somebody who's boastful and brash and loud and bragging about how awesome they are. We don't think of someone who says, no, no, no thanks, I don't need help, I, I got this. But Peter says, that's not all pride is. It's not just the loud braggart. So why is our anxiety and worry really pride in disguise? Because worry denies that we have the love of a sovereign God working for us. And instead we feel and act like everything depends on us. 
It's pride that says, everything's riding on me. The reason I'm so scared is, to be honest, I think it all rises or falls based on how well I do this thing. If I do great, (laughs) well, you know. And if I don't do great, it'll all fall apart. But it's all about me. I have put myself at the center of everything going on. And that's what makes us fearful and worried and anxious. And there are lots of things in life for us to be anxious about, right? In fact, the word here translated as anxieties is often just translated simply as cares. So sometimes we think, oh, the things that we're anxious about, we only picture things that you might be terrified of. You say, I don't really have a lot of anxieties. Don't just think of worst case scenarios. Think of the cares of your heart. What are the things that occupy your attention? What's often on your mind? When you get distracted, where do your thoughts tend to drift off to? What are the things that, when you wake up at night, what pops into your mind? What do you worry about? Those are the anxieties Peter's talking about here. And while at first these anxieties can seem harmless, like, yeah, they're just, they're things I worry about. Everybody has them. They're not a big deal. While they seem harmless, these cares can actually be deadly. When Jesus tells us the parable of the sower about how different people respond to hearing the gospel, listen to what he says about one group in Luke chapter 8. He says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares or anxieties and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Peter's saying, Jesus is saying they're carrying anxieties can actually choke out spiritual life. It's not harmless. It's like this weed that just wraps itself around a healthy plant and chokes it to death so that it bears no fruit. Why does it do that? Because in our hearts and minds, any thoughts about Jesus and how great he is and who he is gets choked out by a thousand other cares and worries. So like, I got no time to think about Jesus because I got to figure out what I'm going to get to that meeting. Did I get that email sent? Will the project be done on time? Who's going to pay for that? When's my doctor's appointment? How are we ever going to get out of this? And all those things just choke out any thoughts of who God is. Peter knows that. And that's why he tells us not to pridefully carry our anxieties ourselves, but to humbly cast them on God. And then what I love here is that Peter doesn't just say, just do that. No, Peter's Peter's a good preacher here. He gives you five glorious reasons why we should cast our anxieties onto God. First, he says, cast your anxieties on God because God opposes the proud. In other words, don't hang on to them because it's really simple. If you think you can handle life on your own, you're actually setting yourself up as God's opponent. God's saying, look, one of us is going to carry this, me or you. You say, no, I don't need you, God. I got this. And so when you do that, you're setting yourself up to go mano a mano against the Almighty. And you don't want God to be against you. He holds the universe together. Most of us, can't hold our own lives together, right? So God says, you don't want that. So cast your anxieties on God because he opposes the proud. But the second reason we should cast our anxieties on God is because he gives grace to the humble. 
You say, yeah, I, I hear you, pastor, but to be totally honest, I haven't been doing that great lately. I've been really struggling and I, I, don't, I don't really don't deserve God's help the way I'm living right now. Perfect. That's why he gives grace. Not what you earned, it's grace. As we often sing in that old hymn, Come Ye Sinners, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's who God helps. That's what the humble do, is they don't say, God, I got this. They say, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. And that's who God says, all right, you get some grace. The third reason we cast our anxieties on God is because he is mighty. Do you see that in the text? We humble ourselves under his mighty hand. You and I both know the burdens we, we carry, friends, they get too heavy for us. I don't care how broad your shoulders are, how tough you are, sooner or later you're worn down and weary and you're tired. But not God. He never faints or grows weary. He is mighty in power. And he can handle every single thing you throw at him. Every burden is nothing to him. Fourth, not only is God able to carry your anxieties, he wants to. He wants to. Do you, see, do you see those words? He cares for you. Let that land on you. God isn't only powerful, he loves us. And he's eager to use all that majestic power, not just to show off, not just to just flex his muscles. He says, I want to use all this sovereign, omnipotent power for your good, Christian. He's not neutral towards you. He's not sitting up there uninterested in you. He's not frustrated with you, Christian. He cares for you more deeply than you can possibly know. And there is no better news in the world than the fact that the almighty God who speaks creation into existence cares for you. And fifth, God promised that when we cast our anxieties on him, he will exalt us. That means simply to lift us up. And it's not mainly, sometimes we think of exalted as we are exalted over someone else. Here, Peter's not using it that way. He's not saying that God will lift you up over others. He's saying he will lift you up out of your troubles. He'll pull us up out of that miry clay and he will set our feet upon a rock. But don't miss. Don't miss. It's so easy to say yes, but don't miss. He says he'll do it at the proper time. Now, the bad news, friends, is the proper time means when he says it's proper. Not necessarily when I or you think it's proper. But when the time is right, in his perfect wisdom and perfect love, when that time is right, if we cast our anxieties onto God, he will lift us up. So Peter's first word to us is exile. Stand firm against your anxieties. Don't carry them in pride, but cast them on God in humility. That's our first point. Second, we are to stand firm against our adversary. Look with me at verse 8. He says, be sober-minded. 
Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So here in verse 8, you got two commands, right? Be sober-minded, be watchful. These two words are very similar, and they both have to do with staying alert. You might rephrase them. I think this kind of helps it land a little better. Think of the commands here as, don't be drunk and don't be distracted. That's what Peter's saying. Don't don't be drunk and don't be distracted. We've already talked about what he means by being sober-minded here, right? We've seen this twice already in 1 Peter. Back in chapter 1, verse 13, we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then, in chapter 4, verse 7, Peter told us, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So what's he saying? Why does he keep using this language? He's saying, don't get intoxicated by the ways of this world. They are intoxicating. They do have an effect. They change us. They impact us. They influence us. So don't let your mind and your heart be clouded by the world's pleasures and cares. Instead, keep your focus, your sober-minded, clear-eyed focus on the fact that Jesus is coming back. And there will be endless grace that comes with him. So Christian, keep your hearts unimpaired so that you can pray rightly in light of that reality. And he adds, and be watchful. Be watchful. In other words, don't be lulled to sleep. It's so easy, right? We forget that there's a war going on. So we just lull, we are lulled into a complacency and a sleep. And here Peter says, don't let that happen. Be watchful. Peter knew this word well. Because this is the same word that Jesus used when he found Peter sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus had asked him, pray with me. Watch with me. And he comes back and he finds Peter sleeping and he says, could you not watch one hour? And then Jesus told Peter, it wasn't just like, oh, that's a shame you didn't do it. He told Peter why it was so important that he watch. Jesus said to him in the garden, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In other words, Peter, you gotta watch because temptation's coming. You gotta watch because there's a war going on. So in verse eight, Peter says, don't get drunk and don't get distracted. Stay alert, stay focused. And now look, where does he go? The same place Jesus went. Why? Because danger is lurking. We have an adversary, the devil. He is our enemy, our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. Now, whenever we bring up the devil, it's always, I think, worthwhile noting that there are two opposite ways we can go wrong in thinking about the devil, right? We can either focus on him or we can forget him. We either think he's responsible for everything that goes wrong in the world, like my shoelace broke. Oh, there's the devil just trying to trip me up. Probably not. Or we go the other way. We act like he doesn't even really exist. And both are wrong. The devil, friends, is real and strong, 
and he hates us. That's why he's our adversary, because he's actively working against Christians. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. So what does that mean? How how would he devour us? He wants to destroy your faith. More than anything else, what he's after is he wants to chew up and spit out your trust and your hope in Jesus. And he will use the fear and the pain of suffering to try to get you to stop believing that God is really strong enough to help you. So that when you go through those painful moments of suffering, he's there telling you, see, he can't do it. Why are you putting your trust in him? This this is worthless. Why are you doing that? Or as you go through the trials, he will get you to doubt that God really does care for you. He doesn't want you to persevere through suffering. He wants you to give up and give in. So he'll come. His roar often sounds like a whisper. It would be so much easier if you just lived like other people. Is following Jesus really worth all this hassle? If you weren't following him, you wouldn't have a lot of these challenges. If God really loved you, you would not be going through this right now. You think he's still going to help you after what you've done this week? Just give up this Jesus stuff and a lot of these trials just go away. We know that because we've all heard it. So what do we do when our adversary comes after us like this, whispering these things in our ear? Verse 9. We resist him. We stand strong against his lies and temptations. But if you're tracking with me, there should be something in your head saying, wait a minute, you already told us that he's stronger than we are. So how can I possibly resist him? Peter tells us. We resist him firm in our faith. We don't trust in our own power to resist him. When those temptations come, I'm not looking to me. I'm not looking to my own inherent self-wrought ability to say no. What we do instead is we trust God to do what we can't. Did we in our own strength confide? Friends, our striving really would be losing. So instead we trust Jesus, the man of God's own choosing. What does that look like? It means we put on the armor God's given us for this battle. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we take up the shield of faith. You hear that? It's faith with which we can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. What that means is that we trust the promises of God and they act as a shield to protect us against the devil's lies and temptations. So when he's hurling those thoughts and those whispers and those doubts, you put up and say, I know what's true. I know what God has promised and he is able to keep every one of those promises and those darts just bounce off. We take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and we fight the devil's lies and despairs with the truth and hope of the gospel. We stand against our adversary, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God supplies. We say no to his temptations to sin and lose faith. And here's the other thing. If we get knocked down, we humbly repent and we get back up and we keep fighting by faith. And we do this in full confidence in what we read in Romans 16, 20, where Paul promises us the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 
This fight won't last forever. The devil's roaring will one day be silenced once and for all. And in verses 10 and 11, that's where Peter goes. He looks forward to that day when suffering ceases and he calls us to stand firm in confident hope. So look at verse 10 with me. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this is unbelievably good news. Our suffering won't last forever. Do you see that precious word, after? That means there is a time after suffering. When suffering is only in the past tense. When suffering is only a memory. When suffering is done. And Peter says we have just a little while until that becomes reality. No matter how long our suffering in this life, whether a few days or several decades, it's all for just a little while compared to the eternal glory that awaits us. These few years of pain and trial here will be swallowed up by the endless ages of God showing us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, after our short time as exiles is done, we will finally be home forever in our true country where beside the king will walk and there our heart will find its treasure and Christ will be ours forever and ever. Amen. And what Peter is telling you here is that no matter what you face now and no matter how hard your life may be, friend, if you are in Jesus, you can be confident God will get you home. After all, he's the one who called you to his eternal glory. In other words, that was his plan all along. He didn't call you just to walk with him for a while and later say, oh, if you'd like to get to glory. He said, no, from the beginning, my plan is I'm getting you to glory. That's his plan from before time began. Listen to Romans 8. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those verses are sometimes called the golden chain of redemption because each part of that is unbreakably linked to the others. In other words, if God called you, he will glorify you. As 1 Thessalonians 5 says, he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. The outcome for the Christian is never in doubt. The moment God awakens your soul to trust and love him, you can have confident certainty that God will finish what he started. 
Because he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And all of it, from beginning to end, is grace. It's not based on what you've done or how good you've been. The one who saves us is called the God of grace. And you say, I hear you, but again, I don't know if he's got enough. You don't know how deep my sin goes. You don't know how many times I've messed up. You don't know how badly I'm struggling to be a follower. I'm trying, but man, I'm bad at it. Friend, he's the God of all grace. He has more than enough to finish what he started in you. And when our sufferings are over, Peter says, he himself, the God of all grace, he himself will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. In other words, when Jesus comes back to put all things right, he's gonna put you right too. We will finally be the people we were made to be. No more being handicapped by our sin. No more being held back by our suffering. We will be free to live more fully than we can possibly imagine. Our joy will be untainted by sorrow. Our love will be unmixed with selfishness. And our peace will be undisturbed by fear. Friend, if you are a believer in Jesus, this is not a fantasy. This is your future. How can we be certain? Because God himself will do it. And who is he? Verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. In other words, he has all dominion. He has all power. He does all that he pleases. And what pleases him? Getting his blood-bought children safely home to be with him. This all-powerful king is the one in chapter 1 who is guarding us through faith as we live in exile now. So we can stand firm in confident hope that God will get us home. After all that, we come to verse 12 where Peter sums up the point of his letter. Look there with me. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. First thing to notice here is you can tell that Peter was a preacher since he considers this a brief letter, right? It's not new. It's not even just a Baptist thing, right? It's in your Bibles that Peter says after five chapters, look, this is just a short little word for you guys. So I, I find myself in good company. I don't know, the, the lack of laughter is either, I, I'm trying to decide, discern what that means, whether you're like, oh, I never thought of him as long, but, but notice why Peter wrote this letter. It was to exhort and declare. Other words, or to urge and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So we should naturally ask, well, what does he mean by this? What is Peter saying is the true grace of God? And the answer is, it's everything that he's written to us. So what is the true grace of God in which exiles are to stand firm? Well, let's let Peter tell us in his own words. The true grace of God is the good news 
that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by men, but precious in the sight of God and chosen. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. It's the good news that Jesus died to save us from our sins, that we've been given a new identity as the exiled people of God, and we've been born again into a new family, that our new life is a changed life, filled with doing good and living in a posture of humble submission that we have a living hope and a sure inheritance that though we will face suffering for Jesus' sake, it will only be a little while until we forever enjoy his glory. This is the true grace of God. Are you standing in this grace? I want you to, to really ask yourself this morning, there is no other safe place to stand and there's no better place to stand. If you're not, if you're here and this is foreign to you and you say, I don't know this Jesus the way you talk about him, you can, you can, because he is a God of grace and all who come to him, he'll never cast out. So if you don't know this, but you want to stand in this grace, all you need to do is feel your need of him, to turn from your sin in humility and cast your sins on him because he cares for you. 
And friends, if you've already trusted in him, this is your reminder. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So stand firm against your anxieties. Stand firm against your adversary. Stand firm in confident hope. Stand firm in grace. And finally, stand firm together. Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's two ideas in these last couple verses about standing firm together that I want you to see. First, Peter reminds his readers that we are a family. We are a family. You see that in two ways there. One, he calls Mark his son. Now, Mark is not his son through birth or adoption, but through the gospel. Peter is his father in the faith. So like Timothy to Paul, Mark has become so dear to Peter that he has become his true child in the faith. And then the second way you see the family idea is when Peter says to greet one another with a kiss of love. And this time, this culture, this would have been a kiss on each cheek like some cultures still do today. And at this time, this was a sign of affection that wasn't used for friends, wasn't used for mere acquaintances. This was reserved only for family. So Peter's saying, greet one another like family because that's what you are. The grace we stand in is a grace that creates a new family. So remember that when God makes us living stones, he's not simply collecting rocks. He's building us together as a spiritual house. The second idea about standing firm together Peter mentions here is in verse 14. When Peter talks about she who is at Babylon, he's using code. The she there would have been the church. And Babylon was a common Christian code word for Rome. Because just like when Israel in the Old Testament had been in exile, and Babylon was the earthly center of power against God, now Rome fits that description. As the church now finds itself in exile, living in a land that's not our home. So what Peter's saying in that verse is, your fellow exiles in Rome send you greetings. And notice he says, they are likewise chosen. Here Peter's coming full circle. You remember how he opened the letter back in chapter 1? He said, to the elect or chosen exiles. Now he closes by saying, your fellow chosen exiles send you greetings. And through these ideas of family and fellow exiles, Peter wants to remind us that we don't stand firm alone. We stand firm together. And as we stand firm together through every toil and danger, through every suffering and trial, we remind each other over and over again, we're almost home. Just a little while. So as we conclude this book, stand firm, exiles. Stand firm against your anxieties. Stand firm against your adversaries. Stand firm in confident hope. Stand firm in this true grace of God. And stand firm together. Chapelwood, 
Let's press on because we are almost home. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this letter that you inspired Peter to write. God, thank you for the way that your word is living and active and though written so long ago, it still speaks today. God, we pray that you would emblazon these truths upon our hearts, that it would be more than mere information, but that you would use it to bring about true transformation. God, help us to embrace our identity as elect exiles. Help us to live lives marked by a holiness in imitation of our Father. Help us to live lives of hope that are willing to face suffering for Jesus' sake because we know with great confidence that it will be worth it when he comes back. And God, as we journey down this road, would you help us to do it together? Would we not try to proudly carry our own anxieties, but would we cast them on you, remembering that you care for us? And would you help us to care well for one another? God, thank you that it will be just a little while. Would you give us patience And would you give us endurance? Would you help us to persevere with all joy as we await the day when we are finally home? We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.